This episode of New Politics was released on the 29th of October, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the Labor government's first budget of this parliamentary term and the political reaction to it. And we look at the opposition's budget reply speech. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, criminal mastermind. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au. And all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Australians know that there are hard days to come and hard decisions to accompany them. And getting through this period stronger than we were before will rely on the very best, best aspects of our national character. Our resilience, our pragmatism, our cooperation and our confidence, and above all else, our belief in each other. And it will rely on a government dedicated and determined to confront challenges ignored for too long and to seize the opportunities that won't wait for us any longer. This budget does more than end a wasted decade, a decade marked by energy chaos, a crisis in aged care, skills shortages and stagnant wages, and not enough to show for a trillion dollars in debt. It does more than draw a line under the drift, decline and decay that defined it. It begins to put things right. It begins to build a better future that befits our people and the sacrifices that they make for each other. A future we can all have a stake in, all sharing in its success. A stronger, more resilient Australia, with more opportunities for more people in more parts of our amazing country. The second budget for 2022 has been released and is Labor's first budget in nine years. It's a budget that has been prepared in very difficult circumstances. There's a national government debt of almost a trillion dollars. Inflation is now running at 7.3%. And there's a whole lot of demands about what the government should be doing with taxpayer funds over the next few years. But economics isn't just about debt and inflation. There's a wide range of issues to take into account. There's revenue, how this money is spent. There's productivity issues. There's consumer behavior issues. And of course, there's the politics. Budgets are all about government trying to achieve their policy objectives according to their ideological persuasions, but the Labor government is trying to balance a number of different expectations, difficult economic circumstances, managing expectations, keeping their election promises. But this first budget from Jim Chalmers seems to be about building up trust with the electorate first up. And, and of course, there's going to be people that aren't very happy with this budget. And it is disappointing from a climate change perspective. And there's still no additional support for people on JobSeeker. But it's a budget that's getting back to that idea of putting people at the centre of the economy. And I think that's a very important first step. It is. After nine years where the general populace was put last... And then, of course, the budgets don't go through, too. And that's the other thing I think we've got to remember. I, I can't remember if it was either no budgets or only one budget was passed. And the, 
if the budget was passed, it was heavily modified. This budget will pass through the Senate, probably with some amendments, probably with some changes here and there, but it's a more sympathetic Senate than the the previous government was able to get, really, and it bodes well. Now, of course, it's not a full budget. Budget's traditionally done in May. This is just a mini-budget, really, to try and sort things out from the failed budget and the budget that wasn't actually implemented in May. It's good that they've put a bit more into education. It's good that they're putting money into social housing. Both issues lie at the heart of what the problems are in Australia. We need to be a clever country, as uh, Bob Hawke tried to posit it. We also need a populace that is in secure housing. It's a frightening amount of people who aren't living in fixed addresses, but not through choice. But there's a lot of people who require housing who just don't get it. And we need that. The biggest uh, demographic is older women. So again, anything that helps fix this is a good thing. Could more have been done? Most likely more could have been done. But Positive steps are positive steps after nine years of backward steps. Well, in most budgets, there's always something extra that can always be done. But in this budget, there are key investments in early education and labour is moving closer to universal access for this sector. And this is a key educational area. It's not the babysitting approach adopted by the coalition government. And a lot of people might not realise this, but early education and childcare, it's one of the key issues that have been staring the government in the face for a long, long time and they've refused to do very much about it. It's also a key productivity and economic issue. It offers some of the best investment prospects for governments. Every dollar spent on early education now saves the government $7 down the track later on. So thankfully the Albanese government gets this and there is a budget measure related to affordable social housing and there's a pledge to build an additional 1 million houses over the next five years. There's also 480,000 fee-free TAFE places and for those who were complaining about this, there has been a skill shortage in Australia for some time. So this will go some way to addressing this. There's 20,000 additional university places, health prescriptions have been capped and there's also an increase for paid parental leave. And I think that it's a budget that is that first step of putting people back at the centre of the economy. And, and of course, there are some people that have been left out. As I mentioned before, job seeker rate hasn't been changed and Labor didn't actually promise to raise job seeker before, but it should. And that's just one of the damning aspects of this budget. But one other new area of budget reporting is quality of life factors. And I think that they were reluctant to refer to it as a well-being budget because that would have brought about the ire of the media and ridicule from the opposition. But I guess that makes sense because the coalition has never really been interested in the well-being of the general community. But in these quality of life factors, it measures issues that you'd normally expect to see in a well-being budget. That's life expectancy, gender equity and pay issues, unemployment, education levels, greenhouse emissions, life satisfaction, household debt. And I think this sort of approach provides for a more holistic approach to budget management. The, the cold and hard numbers of balance sheets of a federal budget, they do have a material effect on people's lives. And going past that idea of just looking at tax rates and deficits, I think is a better way of assessing how a budget does affect people in the community. We have a very economically challenged press gallery and a press gallery that is so used to goodies and baddies and not used to subtlety and nuance with 
notable and honourable exceptions, don't want to think in terms of the subtlety of budgets. And I suppose after nine years of very unsubtle budgets too, getting your head around something that tries to balance amongst everybody, meaning that there will be some people less well off in one area, but maybe better off in another. And this whole talk of winners and losers, and it makes it as if the government played its favourites, which it may well have done, but it did it a lot more subtly and a lot more adeptly than the last government. We should probably mention that there's still a, too many uh, subsidies to dying industries with no real justification for it, and that's something that I hope that they address over the next few years. I think, too, some of the things that they might need to address may need to be subjects of inquiries or royal commissions before they can address them properly. Politicians' pays, for example. How much can you get out of travel allowance? And and genuine work expenses, but people are getting far more back from their work expenses than they're spending. That type of thing, even though it's a very small part, it's the principle and the philosophy of it. I think they need to look at the NDIS a bit more compassionately. I haven't finished going through the budget yet. I'm trying to let it settle in and I'm waiting for what the Senate does to it, if anything. The Senate might say, no, this is good and let it through. They might make some fairly major changes too. But as a first go, I thought it could have been a whole lot worse, even allowing for it could have been better. Well, David, you mentioned the media before, and I was probably a little bit naive to expect this. Labor hasn't been in government for nine years, so I might have forgotten about all of this. But when Labor is in government, the media totally changes its tune about how it analyses the national economy and budgets. And once again, I think the press gallery has got it all wrong. Now, the good thing about having two budgets so close to each other is that we can easily remember what happened six months ago when the coalition delivered its final budget in March. And At the time, most of the reporting was positive or neutral. Some of the headlines were, we do hold a hose, mate, and that's turning around the negative of Scott Morrison where he didn't hold a hose during the bushfires of 2019, trying to turn that around into a positive. Buy now, pay later. It was a budget that showed restraint, responsible. It was extraordinary. But six months later, they've totally changed their tune. Some of the headlines now are, Labor promises copper hammering, sleight of hand with your cash, Budget paints a bleak picture. A car crash coming. Is the idea of affordable homes too good to be true? And you referred to this before, David. Find out if you're a winner or a loser. And the worst headline yet, dirty little secret at the heart of budget in plain sight. And that was referring to the effects of inflation, which generally affect lower income people the most. And, you know, the dirty little secret, it's got those connotations of pedophilia, is actually quite disgusting. And here's how Andrew Proben from the ABC introduced his analysis of the budget. Um, Andrew, I'll start with you. There's a moment in a budget lockup where you've been looking at the budget papers where the narrative emerges. What was it today? Well, the narrative today, Sarah, is that there's one clear winner and millions of losers. The big winner is the federal purse, which is awash with billions of dollars in extra revenue. The losers, and there's lots of them, households, workers, who who now have to deal with a twin peril of a rising cost of living and the uh, pay, which effectively goes backwards for at least 18 months or so. So these are 
tiny little men reporting on all of this. There's Philip Curry, Andrew Proben, Stan Grant, David Crow, and they're just severely compromised people in the media. And they disgust me so much that I'm actually starting to feel sorry for them. But the media is fixated on two issues, and that's tax and debts. And they're the easy stories to run in the media. Raising taxes is bad, debt is even worse. And during the week, I came across an interesting graph produced by Alan Austin, and he's a freelance economics journalist. And during the time of the Rudd and Gillard governments, the amount of media coverage mentioning government debt blowout was around 40 to 50 percent between 2007 and 13, and national government debt got to around $270 billion at that time. But the percentage of media coverage between 2013 and 2022 when the coalition government was in office, dropped down to around 20% of all media coverage, even though national government debt increased up to around $900 billion. So the formula is Labor gets twice as much coverage over what the media perceives to be bad economic news. Coalition gets about half the coverage, even though the problems it causes are three times as bad. And we can now see that the media is getting back to those old habits. And these people have got no interest in the national interest. Labor's got to fix up all of these problems that were created by the friends of the media, and that's the Liberal Party and the National Party. Even though the coalition have almost totally destroyed the economy, and it's now the Labor government that's getting all the attacks from the media. It's bizarre in that... You can ask, and you should ask the Treasurer questions at the National Press Council, and you can ask challenging questions. But the way that he was hectored, the way that they would throw questions out as if, heart, you can't answer this because we're that much smarter. And then it turned out he could answer questions like that they, <laughs> <laughs> and answered them really well. There's a great article by Tim Dunlop that I've just started reading that it goes through it really well on the weaknesses of the press gallery. And if you can chase it up, um, I thoroughly recommend it. It's really sad because had they said, look, you've given this much extra to housing, what is your aim with that? And then he explains it. How are you going to sustain it? And will it taper off? There are all kinds of questions you can ask that still hold him to account without being childish and immature and that whole gotcha. They're all hoping for the big headline, of course. But sometimes a budget is just a very technical document that requires close, subtle reason, which I suspect very few of our journalists are capable of, or I'll be really fair here, or allowed to do. Oh, well, it seems like there always has to be an angle of attack. If the coalition hasn't got anything negative to say, well, the media will then bring in the Australian Greens to do the attack. And the media usually doesn't give much airtime to the Australian Greens, but on the affordable housing scheme, which on the surface seems to be a very positive contribution to making mm. housing affordable for lower-income people, and, and the media wheels in Adam Bant for him to say that one million houses is not enough and it's not going to make any difference at all, well... Hang on, there's 11 million dwellings across Australia and over the next five years, through natural growth and progress, there will be 1 million new dwellings built and Labor's proposal will add another 1 million houses to, to that amount. So to suggest that it's not going to make a difference, well, you know, we can argue about the amount of difference that it's going to make, but to suggest that adding 10% to the housing stock across Australia is not going to make a difference, that well, that's absolutely ridiculous. And we can argue that there's possibly other issues that relate to supply and demand in housing. Housing values may drop for existing owners and there's all of those sort of issues. But this is how the media plays out when a Labor government is in office. And 
David, you mentioned the National Press Club before. The questions of Jim Chalmers at the National Press Club the following day after the budget, they were absolutely facile. And it's just embarrassing to see clever people embarrass themselves on the national stage. And I'm not suggesting that governments are beyond scrutiny. The government should be scrutinised or the government should be criticised for their lack of support for people on JobSeeker and, and the lower level of support for lower-income people from this budget, they should be criticised for not doing more on climate change action. But it just can't be a case where everything in this budget is terrible, and that's the impression that the media wants to put out there. And I think that generally this is a good budget, given all the economic circumstances and all the issues that the country is facing. But I think it's also a case where this budget is a conversation starter. Jim Chalmers is an incredibly good political communicator. He's put out that message that he wants to take the electorate into these conversations that he wants to have about economic reform and economic conditions that Australia is facing and will be facing for some time into the future. And I think this is where the media reporting of the budget is so ridiculous and totally missing the point. They're demanding that Labor fixes up all of these issues immediately, but it's also a case where Labor wants to build a case for long-term reform that ends up benefiting Australia in the longer term. And building levels of trust within the electorate, engaging the community with all the economic changes that you're planning to make. And if the public can see and understand what the goals of this government are, even if they don't get there in the short term, I think they will be rewarded electorally. And and that's a welcome change to think long term rather than just solely being focused on the next election, which is what the coalition was pretty much doing for nine years. And and I'm not suggesting that the Labor government isn't taking into account the next federal election. Of course they are. That's what politicians do. But I think that they're thinking about the next few parliamentary terms, not just this term that ends in 2025. And in fact, I, I think it wasn't even the next election. It was the next round of opinion polls that the last government was more obsessed with, making sure their opinion ratings remained high, which, of course, should bode well in an election. And a lack of good policy or really lack of policy in the end even your most ardent supporters wish you to do the job that you're paid to do how you do it and what you do it for and what the results of it are is stuff that keeps us fed eddie but <laughs> but a competent government will always do better than an incompetent one even if it's only for a one or two terms You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. announcement, even if it is the second one of the year. There's also a budget right of reply for the Leader of the Opposition, and Peter Dutton hit all of the predictable issues, such as cost of living issues, broken promises, cost of gas and electricity, and just like the media, he's fixated on the $275 reduction in power prices that Labor promised during the last election campaign. And 
That was a power reduction that was promised by Labor by 2025, and that's two years away. But that's not stopping Peter Dutton from making it seem like that's a promise that's been broken right now. Now, it's hard work being in opposition, trying to make yourself seem relevant when you're not, and especially when there's a new government that's trying to fix up all the severe budget problems that the coalition has created over the past nine years. And you'd have to hope that the electorate is just going to forget all of these problems that you left behind. But at this stage, Peter Dutton just has to look for all those small issues to gain traction, not just for the Liberal and the National parties, but for his own position as well. As leader of particularly leader of the opposition, or the prime ministers too. One of the key jobs of that job is keeping the job. (laughs) (laughs) You have to show every day that you're worthy of the job. And I know a lot of you out there saying, well, that's true of my job too. You know, I can't slack off one day and slack off the other. And absolutely that's true. But there's a lot of pressure on the leaders of parties to perform to the point where one bad day can finish your career and finish your hopes and aspirations for what you were wanting to do. Uh, And that's one bad day that's out of your control. Now with Peter Dutton, of course, he's still not a terribly popular leader of the opposition. He's down to around John Howard, 1986 levels. And I'll be fair, John Howard, of course, came back and became Australia's second longest prime minister. But As I've pointed out, I don't think Dutton has the nuance, the nous, or the skills to build up. There was commentary back in 86 about how it was a terrible shame that such a good person like John Howard just can't capture the imagination of the people and can't because he'd be an asset. There was that type of commentary around amongst all the look at Mr. 17% stuff. I don't see a lot of that for Peter Dutton. And listeners, if you have some, please send it through because, you know, I'd I'd love to read. Uh, In fact, I see none of it. That's one of the issues. So he had to do a really impactful budget reply speech, and I don't think he did. The papers sort of seem to mention that he did it but not really say anything. And for a media that seems to be more on his side than the other, that's rather instructive. Well, maybe at this stage of the political cycle it's not that important, but the big message from Peter Dutton during his budget reply speech was that Labor can't manage money and when they run out of money, they come after yours. And he pushed that narrative that Labor destroys the economy and it's the Liberal National Coalition that always comes in to clean up the mess. And I actually thought that it would have been the other way around, that most of the times it's actually Labor that comes in to fix up the mess left behind, as they had to do in 1929 at the time of the Depression or in 1972 when the coalition left behind stagflation and a poorly managed economy. 1983, they left behind a recession and high unemployment for Labor to clean up. In 2007, well, you could argue that the coalition did leave behind a good economy, and they did, except for the fact that they squandered proceeds from the mining boom and in 2022 they've left behind economic conditions that have high inflation built into it and another recession and almost one trillion dollars in national government debt so you think well who's the good economic manager here peter dutton also outlined that the coalition is the party of lower taxes and they want to lower taxes even further even though the coalition is not actually the party of lower taxes, they've been the highest taxing governments ever as a proportion of GDP. And this is also coming at a time when most economists are suggesting that taxes should be going up at this stage to tackle inflation. And that's the exact opposite of what Peter Dutton is saying. Obviously, Peter Dutton has his backers who are interested in a good economy for them and a not so good economy for everybody else. So there's that. Peter Dutton doesn't really understand economics, 
not in the way that Jim Chalmers did, not in the way that John Howard did, not in the way that even Peter Costello, who wasn't really a great treasurer at all, but did at least understand the mechanism of economics, even if he didn't use it very well. And again, I'll be fair to Peter Dutton, he's been surrounded by very poor economic thinkers in terms of parliamentary members. And of course, he's had access to the various departments who are good at this stuff, but either hasn't used them or hasn't really understood what they've said to him. Either way, it doesn't bode well for him as a long-term leader of the opposition and then prime minister. Again, a week is a long time in politics and anything can happen. Oh, well, that's absolutely right. But also during the budget reply speech, and this is what opposition leaders have to actually do, but Dutton was also weaving in his personal story into the budget reply. And of course, that's what you expect from an opposition leader that not many people know about. But it's the same old story that he's always weaved, or that he's from a working class family. His father was a bricklayer. His father's business was affected by high interest rates from the Hawke-Keating government in the early 1990s and he also let everyone know that he's a police officer too but this entire process has actually got very little to do with budgets and money and economics it's all about presenting Peter Dutton as the alternative prime minister and also as an electable leader and this is going to be very hard work Peter Dutton finds himself in the same position that Anthony Albanese found himself in 2020. Albanese was like a forlorn figure during his first budget reply in 2020. He'd been sidelined by all the events surrounding COVID. The Labor Party had had a bad election loss the year before, and this is very similar to Peter Dutton. Bad election loss, the opposition is almost irrelevant at this stage of the political cycle, and they're also almost out of the picture because of events related to difficult economic circumstances. And I guess in some sense, this is why Peter Dutton is latching onto Labor's promise of $275 a year in their power bill reduction. And it's got nothing to do with the amount. It's only $5 per week. And it was promised by 2025. But Peter Dutton is making it seem like it's a really, really big deal. And it's already a broken promise. And and I think this is also a lesson for all oppositions. Never add a figure to the promise of a power bill. Tony Abbott made the promise of a $550 electricity bill reduction once the carbon pricing legislation was repealed. That, of course, never happened, but he didn't actually get much blowback from that. But the coalition does have that ability to make a big deal out of absolutely nothing. So Labor shouldn't have made that promise in the first place about the $275 power bill reduction, and it's something that will probably haunt them in the future because it is an undeliverable promise. Unless they nationalise power... And so then they can control the levers of cost and price. You can't promise very, you can suggest, you can demonstrate that this might happen. You can give this as a range of possibilities. You can be almost absolutely sure it'll happen, but you can't really promise stuff that's out of your control. Oh, well, I guess one thing that they could do is give people a $250 rebate in 2025 and say, well, here's your power bill reduction. Yep. They could do that. And the opposition will still complain about how, well, that's not what we meant and it's just going to put electricity bills up $250 or what have you, like the pointing to the housing grant that you could get that put house prices up $7,000. But I wonder if by 2025 we'll even have an opposition that the press is listening to. 
<laughs> Getting back to that point that Peter Dutton in 2022 was at the same point that Albanese was at in 2020, and Albanese is now the Prime Minister, yep. so things can change dramatically, but there's also other issues that Peter Dutton has brought up that sees him as a continuation of either the Howard, Abbott or the Morrison governments. Maybe it's all three combined. He suggested that nuclear energy is a solution to all of Australia's energy problems, even though the coalition has never seriously considered nuclear energy in the past whenever they've been in office. He's also banging on about industrial relations and Labor has introduced changes to industrial relations as well. He's been taking a swipe at unions. He brought up the culture wars again, talking about sanitised history, radical gender theory, ideology in the classroom... So, you know, these are the usual conservative talking points you expect to hear from a Liberal Party leader such as Peter Dutton. But I think the difference between Peter Dutton and Albanese is that Dutton is up against a far more credible and determined government. And I think the Labor Party has learned from all the internal warfare that destroyed the Rudd and Gillard governments. And that's not to say that the Liberal Party won't be back anytime soon. We have to remember that many in the media were saying that Scott Morrison was easily going to win the 2022 election and maybe the next few elections after that. So we can never rule anything out irrespective of how difficult it might look for the Liberal Party at the moment. But I suspect that we'll end up seeing more populist material coming out of Dutton, economic details that don't really make much sense, but it doesn't really matter because it will be supported by the media irrespective of how ridiculous it becomes. We can always guarantee... If nothing else, we can guarantee that. (laughs) You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. So a few people have asked, well, where can Labor improve in this budget? I think that generally this budget or mini budget or whatever you want to call it, I think it actually is a good start. There'll be another budget in May 2023 and Labor could do six monthly budgets for the first two years of the term if they wanted to. But most economists agree that inflation is the biggest issue facing the federal budget and most economists agree that this is what Labor has done right. But we'll have to do more to address inflation and some of this is controllable some of it is not the first big step for Jim Chalmers has been to gain credibility with the Australian public but they'll also have to defy what they said that they were going to do during the last election campaign and that was to address falling wages but it can't really do that until inflation is under control and so that's one of the big first issues that they'll need to do more with but they've got another budget in May next year but they can't really move on any of these other issues until they address inflation first. And inflation is the thing that kills governments really. It takes a government of great skill and experience to be able to navigate uh, inflationary pressures. The other thing they've got to worry about is stagflation, both stagnation and inflation at the same time. It's a challenge and I hope they're up to it. Well, it might also be a case where the current budget thinking isn't really well equipped to deal with the way that the economy is actually moving out of the pandemic phase as well. And it's almost like the economy has gone through a natural reform during the 
pandemic as well with changes to consumer behaviour. There's workplace changes where people want to work in a different way. Many overseas workers, they pretty much disappeared during the pandemic and they're not coming back anytime soon and they were performing most of the lower paid jobs as well. And there's many factors in the economy that are still related to COVID, supply chain issues and those sort of areas. Deficits are predicted for the long term, but deficits are not a problem in themselves. It's what you actually do with that deficit. And we have to remember that between 1955 and 1965, there were deep deficits that were used creatively to build and boost Australia's productivity. But many economists are calling for the revenue base to be improved, which is code for raising taxes. But multinational taxes need to be increased. And and that's been cleaned up a little bit, but that's only raising $4 billion each year. Not sure if raising the GST is a solution because that's a consumption tax and the government needs to bring consumption down to reduce inflation. So it might not get the revenue it needs if it did raise GST and there's all sorts of political problems associated with that. But I think that the big issue that they really need to revisit is the super profits tax. And during the first year of the pandemic, Gina Reinhardt and Andrew Forrest, they increased their net wealth by $48 billion. And if there was a mechanism to tax that increase in wealth by 5 to 10% or increase the royalty rates on mineral extraction, that's going to raise $5 billion. And that's just from two companies. So if the government wants to seriously look at tax reform, that's probably one of the first places that it needs to start looking at. I've said before that the Commonwealth is the one that owns the mining land and it owns the minerals in that mining land. That we've been basically giving it to big, big international companies is a national disgrace. And we squandered it at a time when now the industry and the need for a lot of those resources, not all of them, but a lot of them, is uh, reducing to as little to, uh, to as little as zero. I don't know what our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren are going to think of us, except they saw us coming and we walked right into it. Norway has a terrific economy because they tax their miners properly. And the big thing is that the big mining companies say, well, we'll go elsewhere. Well, maybe you will, but someone else will come in and mine this stuff. It's still needed. And of course, if they walk, we lose nothing because most of them aren't paying tax anyway. So we lose very little of it. So I say jack the price up while there's still a price to be able to be jacked up. And the other issue the Labor government should have introduced in this budget is an increase in real terms in job seeker payments. And even if they set this up as a temporary measure for the next six months until the next budget, unemployment is low at the moment, so it probably wouldn't have cost them too much. But it would have signalled to the unemployed that Labor is looking after their interests. But this is a measure that Labor stubbornly refuses to support. And I think that that's something that they definitely have to address in the May 2023 budget. And as many people have pointed out, well, if a Labor government is not prepared to support this group of people, well, what's the point of a Labor government? But the main issue for the government is to change the economic and political narrative over the next three to five years. And it seems that the Labor government is expecting a longer stint in office, but you know, just because you're expecting that, it doesn't mean that it's just going to happen like that. You've still got to do all the hard work to achieve that. But with a weakened opposition, with not too much to offer at this stage, in my opinion, this is the best time to start to achieve your political goals. This budget is probably the warm-up act, but the next budget in May 2023, that's probably the one that we really need to look at or uh, look forward to. And I think this might be the one where all the big changes start to take place. 
I suspect this one was as much for certainty for the government departments who weren't sure how much money was available for recipients of the various largesse from the government. This one was just starting the first chapter of the budgetary narrative. And of course, a budget is really just the novel you state your political intentions with. It's not a very exciting novel. (laughs) I don't think Dan Brown or J.K. Rowling or any of big-selling novelists are going to lose sleep over the loss of their sales. But, (laughs) let's be fair, this is the foreword, I think. I think you're, you're absolutely right. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.